Welcome to our Dementia Dialogue podcast, where we are discussing changing and adapting when dementia enters a person's life. Dementia Dialogue thanks our sponsor and partner, the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Our guest today is Susan Bithry, who accompanied her husband, Reg, who lived with dementia for a period of 11 years. In talking with Susan, I was struck by her ability to reframe experiences in her life as Reg's condition progressed, so that mistakes that she felt she made became lessons learned and strengths found where many of us might see weakness. Journal entry, September 8, 2006. For many months now, I've been wondering, when will I see the day that I have to start writing things down? Today seems like the day. Something terrible is happening to Reg's memory and I can't pretend any longer, to myself at least. This fog or whatever has been creeping stealthily into our lives, and I guess I've been playing a bit of a game so far. You know, if I don't talk about it or actually write it down, maybe it's not really there. Today it was an order of lumber. He's building a shed for the backyard, a small construction job in the order of things, a task he would have handled easily with one hand tied behind his back in the past but he seems so overwhelmed and confused by small details. Today, he ordered wrong lumber. Oh, he says that the woman at the counter made a mistake, but I know, I just know that he's given them the wrong information, either by getting flummoxed at the desk or losing his train of thought. I just can't seem to multitask, he said wearily today as we unsnarled the confusion between what we actually needed and what had arrived on the truck. Small things, but they begin to add up. I begin to see a scary future. Soon? Who can say? How to document this? Perhaps if I'd been writing things down for the past year or so, I might be able to look back and detect a pattern. But that's the thing about problems like this. By the time you've figured out that there really may be a problem, you're pretty far into it and can't really plot out how you got there or where you made the first or second or third move that actually got you into this mess. It's hard to even know what to write down now. After all, what am I trying to achieve? A journal for others to read later, a diary to help me focus my own thoughts, a written record to compare every few months and determine whether things are declining, improving, or staying the same, all of the above. Part of me hopes that I'll start writing and then a few days into the exercise, I'll be able to laugh and tell myself that I was all in a flap over nothing. But right now I'm worried enough to feel a need to get this record underway and allow a dark elephant to finally be acknowledged. Until tomorrow, then. What you have just heard is the first entry in a journal kept by Susan Bithry when she first sensed the seriousness of her husband's changing condition. Susan has joined me today from Thunder Bay. Welcome to Dementia Dialogue, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Susan, I'm wondering whether you might uh, be able to describe to me uh, some of the other symptoms that were of concern to you as background to this sentinel event in the lumberyard that uh, caused you to uh, elevate your level of concern. Uh, well, in addition to um, this sort of cataclysm that occurred around the uh, the garden shed, Reg had over the past year begun to be kind of fascinated with or worried by the calendar. He was constantly checking, unsure of what day it was, and his memory was not 
what it used to be. And I, I think those were, were kind of the the main things. It, uh, it, it worried me that he he fixated on, on uh, the calendar, became a, a, almost obsessive compulsive. Yes, okay. So it was as much kind of a behavioral manifestation as well as a cognitive yes, impairment. Yes, yeah, yeah. After this particular incident, what were some of the next steps that, you know, that led towards uh, Reg becoming diagnosed with uh, early onset dementia? I think he was 61 at the time that he was diagnosed, if I recall. Going on 62, yes. 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 And his, his official diagnosis was made a year after I began the journal. But the doctor was kind enough to set up an appointment with uh, the neurology department at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, which was about a three-hour drive from where we were living. And that took a full year to be arranged. And at their very first interview with us, which took the best part of a day, it was clear that what we had going on was Alzheimer's. Can you describe a little bit of, of your uh, feelings or reaction when you received the diagnosis? It was clear at the end of that one day that something serious had set in on Reg. Well, I think as with most people, once you actually hear a diagnosis spoken out loud, there's a sense of relief that, I don't know, you're not crazy. Yes. However, it was... Um, you know, there was a lot of sorrow and anger that this should be happening to us. We were, you know, a kind of golden retired younger senior couple who thought we were bulletproof. I guess we weren't. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was the, the realization that um, we were as vulnerable as anyone else. Yes. Um, you mentioned that you have sons that sense some uh, problems with their father. What was their reaction when you shared the diagnosis uh, with them? There was profound sadness on their part and, of course, worry because uh, you do wonder, is this a one-off? Is this just something cosmic that's landed on our father and it won't touch anyone else? Or is this going to continue on? But there was overwhelming love that they were going to support whatever decisions we made around how the two of us were going to, to live with this. And Reg had made the decision almost immediately that we would no longer live in Southern Ontario. He wanted to return to home, to Thunder Bay. And so we uh, shared that with the boys and they assured us that they would help us every step of the way. Yes, and, and when you returned home, did you enjoy the support that you anticipated in uh, making that decision? Yes, and then some. <laughs> he has um, extended family here and they were right there for us. Uh, we have an army of friends and we were put in touch with the kind of professional organizations that were going to be needed. We didn't jump right in with those right away. But in the meantime, uh, we were able to uh, settle in. I think you've uh, touched upon a really crucial issue around decision making and balance in a spousal situation uh, when one person develops a cognitive impairment. And, you know, there may be a tendency, it may have been, you know, for the other spouse to perhaps uh, assume a little bit more control than might be appropriate or authority. I wonder if you could just, if we could explore that for a moment. Well, I think it happens a lot, um, not just with uh, the spouse or the immediate caregivers, but 
people everywhere, it seems, around someone who's diagnosed with Alzheimer's can jump to conclusions and think that life is kind of over for them and we need to help and we need to take over. People stop asking them for their opinions about things, assuming that they can't think things through and that they can't speak for themselves. I learned with my husband that he had still lots to say and I had to start uh, kind of opening my ears and I have since his passing and, and through the, the work that I was doing, I know now that they're becoming their own advocates and speaking for themselves. And, and yeah, I, I made that mistake. I just kind of started rolling up my sleeves just a wee bit too soon and had to kind of pull back. I got some advice from my younger son that I took to heart. He uh, said to me, Mom, you have to let go of always needing to correct Dad when he says something that's wrong. And stop getting angry when he says something hurtful. He doesn't mean it. And those I would hear his voice in my head often. I, those are very uh, wise words that your son yeah. uh, gave to you. I wanted to uh, explore with you a little bit. I, I was taken with the use of the journal at such an early stage in uh, your journey and Reg's journey with dementia. And I wonder if, whether you could talk a little bit about, you know, yourself before the condition, like how is it that uh, journaling uh, became a part of your strategy for uh, working with this condition? Well, I um, sort of dragged myself kicking and screaming into it. People have always told me that I write well, but I never really followed up on that. And when I retired, I was given a journal with the hope that I would fill it in and, and talk about my adventures. And it sat empty. That was the journal that I picked up the day that I decided that I was going to write this all down. Once you get going with a journal, you realize that it's helping. It creates a little space in the day where you can kind of gather your thoughts. It can be as simple as um, just recording kind of the medical stuff that has to go on around your loved one's illness. I guess something that people had always expected me to do, I had tried and not followed through. And this time I thought, this is huge. And the journal ended up being five volumes, one for each year. They're not massive, but they do document what our journey looked like. Yeah, so they were both a tool for documentation, as you've mentioned, but also a tool for kind of reflective learning, if you will, that, you know, you yes. would write something down and then look at it and try to understand it a little bit more deeply. I'm wondering, Susan, you mentioned, um, you know, the first few years in, in Thunder Bay were uh, relatively normal. And while people suggested you might join clubs or organizations. I wonder if you might kind of describe that eventual outreach to some of those uh, resources. The first outreach for me uh, was as a result of a chance encounter in a mall with someone I had known when I'd lived here before. And when she found out what we were going through, she suggested that I meet with a spiritual advisor, grief counselor, and I said to her, well, why would I need a grief counselor? No one has died. And she said, Susan, something has died. 
And I think you would benefit from meeting Catherine and hearing what she has to say that might be helpful. There's a lot that's going to come up for you. That was the first thing I did. And um, we had about a two-year professional relationship in, in which I was just able to have a, a space where I could go and kind of howl at the moon if I needed to. And there was no judgment. I could tell her anything. And that was such a help. It really yes. was. Um, sometimes you, you have things to say that aren't very nice because there's a lot of anger and grief about losing um, things that you had expected to be able to hang on to for a lot longer than you did. And it, it was wonderful to have someone whose job it was to simply listen. Yes. Yes. You had mentioned earlier that you and your husband were seen by many to be kind of model retirees. Yes. <laughs> yes. That sense of loss of what you anticipated to be your future would have been yes. quite profound. Yes. And when he was diagnosed, within about a year of his diagnosis, he had to give up his driver's license. And that, in my view, was more painful to him than the day that he learned that he had Alzheimer's. The loss of a driver's license is definitely one of the most catastrophic things that happens to a person in the early stages of dementia. There's such a social and cultural value assigned to a driver's license as we're growing up. Yes, but um, it was clear that he had cognitive deficiencies that were eventually going to cause him to lose the license. And in the end, I felt that maybe it came a little early but it came at a time when I was still able to reason with him about what was happening and he accepted it. And I became the principal driver. And uh, ironically, I did not learn to drive until I was 40. So he always considered me the new kid. And we began it with um, a few fights when I would be the driver and he would try to correct me and I would get angry about it. And Finally, I came to the realization that uh, he'd been driving longer than I had. He was a, a really skilled driver, and maybe it would be in my best interest to listen to what he had to say. <laughs> so I just began to say things like, well, if I'm doing it wrong, what should I be doing? And he would tell me, I think to this day, I'm a much better driver for that period in our relationship where he became the coach. And it gave him a real sense of, of still having something to offer, which was lovely. Yeah, that's really, that's a very interesting uh, way of kind of adapting to a new situation, eh? where he's lost his license, perhaps a bit prematurely because of the sense of anxiety and agitation, maybe that the computer part of the test, you and he were able to craft a new contribution for him to make through uh, that kind of coaching, as you said. Yes, yes. I'm, I don't want to make myself out as any kind of saint. I didn't come to it quickly. <laughs> but once no. I did, once I did <laughs> it was really a game changer. Yeah. I think, you know, there are lessons to be learned in all of these events that occur in a person's life. And of course, that's the reason why we're doing Dementia Dialogue is to have people describe some of these stories and some of the lessons learned. So there was an interval of uh, roughly 11 years where he was living with dementia. And the first half of those years were relatively, nor, if you will, normal situation where you were able to live uh, in the community and live relatively satisfactory lives. Yes. 
Yes. And then circumstances changed a little bit. I wonder if you might describe uh, what were some of those changing circumstances. When Reg was diagnosed, he was told that in addition to Alzheimer's, he was exhibiting signs of aphasia, which means that he was, uh, parts of his brain that control speech and communication were beginning to be interfered with and that that was only going to get worse. He lost words rather rapidly and he didn't understand words that were being spoken to him. So conversations, you know, kind of changed radically. His inability to speak eventually caused him uh, or was connected, I think, with his exhibiting behaviors. He became um, sort of aggressive. He couldn't make you understand what he wanted or didn't want by speaking to you about it. So he would show you if he didn't want something or he didn't like something, he would take me by the wrists and make it understood that, no, this wasn't, this wasn't a good idea. He began to be restless. and He began to be suspicious of the few hours of respite care. He didn't like the people to come into the house. He didn't understand why they were here. He further didn't understand why I wasn't there. And all of these things kind of escalated. He began to run away from home. He became fascinated with the river that's nearby our house. And it used to scare me because early in his disease, he would um, threaten to uh, end his life. And um, I would say, well, how would you do that? I would find a place where there's lots of water. So uh, just everything became kind of overwhelming. And his, yes. his behaviors in the end, uh, overwhelmed him, and we had to. I had to call the crisis response team here in the city. And when they arrived, he made a threatening overture to me, and they decided that uh, it wasn't up to me to say whether he was going to be taken into hospital. It was their decision that he had to go to the emergency and ultimately to the mental health unit, which was the only place at the time in the city where he could go for his own protection. And so this very gentle, sweet man at this point was uh, considered dangerous. And that was heartbreaking. Yes. Yes, it must have been. Mm -hmm. Now, so he was admitted into the mental health unit at the hospital? Yes. And he was there for 11 weeks. And it was not a pretty story. That was one of the most difficult times in his, in his whole disease. I had to be his personal support worker, basically, because he wouldn't allow anyone uh, on the hospital staff to do things for him. So I was there for eight and nine hours a day, and, and finally he would fall asleep exhausted, and I would go home. Finally, at the end of a long period of time, a, a local psychiatrist here who was just fed up to the teeth with the system decided that she was going to uh, put Reg into a um, dementia care program here that was officially closed, but she made an exception. I think that must be one of the um, most difficult periods for not only the person with the condition, the, the level of you know confusion and anxiety and uh, misinterpretation that people are so vulnerable to, but also on the part of the family where they, as you said, this dear gentle man 
is, you know, being observed in ways that are just so contrary to his nature. I'm wondering, uh, Susan, during this period of time, were you involved with the Alzheimer's Society, for example, or other organizations? Uh, yes, the uh, Alzheimer's Society, they were amazing. I went through all their uh, helpful uh, courses and programs to kind of hone some of the the skills that uh, I knew I was going to need. And um, they were amazing. And I became a, a bit of a spokesperson for them, did some did some public speaking, sharing the journey that uh, Reg and I were going through. And I also became involved with uh, a center at uh, Lakehead University. Now, I'm, I'm interested when you were, when you would be speaking to groups, I'm expecting that you would have come in contact with people that were perhaps uh, experiencing dementia in their lives, uh, either themselves or in relationship with another person who may not have reached out or publicly kind of identified a dementia. Did you encounter folks like that? All the time, yes. And, um, you know, they would thank me for kind of going public with what was happening and say that I had kind of touched on some things that were going on in their lives, maybe give them some direction. Or I would just get phone calls from people who knew people who said, um, you know, it was suggested that if I called you, you might have some suggestions to make. I appreciate the, uh, you know, your continued commitment to, you know, working in this area related to dementia, your volunteer work at the care home. And I think you, you're involved as a volunteer from time to time with the center at uh, Lakehead University. Yes, I, I, I help edit a newsletter for caregivers. I'm wondering if you might describe other parts of your life or kind of using the phrase, you know, moving on. My, my sense is that you're honoring your experience, but at the same time moving on. I wonder if you might discuss that for a moment. After Reg passed away, I stayed on all of the um, the committees that I had been on, and I continued to kind of go forward trying to do the work. And at a certain point, I had to uncouple from almost everything. And that's when I started to allow myself to grieve and to rest. I, I simply had not realized how tired I was. I was exhausted. And I think all through the caregiving and for a long time afterwards, many caregivers just do that. I'm fine. Just carry on. Let's just keep doing this. And then something happens and, and you just kind of hit a wall and realize I can't do this anymore. I can't carry this load. And after Reg passed away, self-care became very important. Susan, we're coming to the end of the interview now, and I'm wondering whether you you know, have any last-moment thoughts, any lessons learned that you would like to share with our listeners before we uh, come to a conclusion. This was a journey that I was absolutely unprepared for in every way. And as most caregivers do, or as lots of caregivers do, I uh, learned on the job, and I think I can be proud of what I did. I always try to remember that I was only required to learn how to be a caregiver. My husband had to go through the disease. He got the worse 
end of all of this. I only hope that I was able to make some things a lot easier for him. I hope. I really hope. Thanks, Susan. If you would like more information about our series and the research underlying it, please go to our website, DementiaDialogue.ca. You will also find there useful resources to help you learn about living with the dementia journey. You are also invited to join us on Facebook at Dementia Dialogue. Feel free to make a comment or perhaps to share a bit of your experience with dementia. Thanks again to our sponsor for today's episode, the Center for Education and Research on Aging and Health at Lakehead University, Thunder Bay, Ontario. Please join us for our next podcast on Dementia Dialogue as we continue our conversation on changing and adapting as part of the dementia journey. My name is David Harvey. You are invited to take part in a call-in show Dementia Dialogue is hosting at the conclusion of this podcast series. Please go to DementiaDialogue.ca for more details.